This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Stevie Klein. Guests on the show usually have unique backgrounds, but having gone from dairy farming to earning multiple law degrees to founding a biotech startup to a partner at Vol One Ventures today, I think Stevie beats most of them. We started this episode with her unique backstory and the problems she saw in the venture capital world. We then talk about why the banner at Vol One Ventures says, let's keep you out of jail the regulatory and political landscape, and the potential of crypto in rural America. Please enjoy my conversation with Stevie Klein. Stevie, this is going to be a fun conversation. I can already tell. Just meeting you on Twitter, you are just one of these hard to explain, but like happiness, like a childlike wonderment of just fun and (laughs) probably how I describe you to people. So this will be unique, but I want to start with how you go from milking cows to having three law degrees from Georgetown, Harvard, and Yale. I went a weird way. I'm the person that just keeps going to school because at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. When I started college, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a veterinarian. Coming from a dairy farm, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to milk cows. I want to treat cows. Cows are my life. Went to vet school for exactly one day fainted the first day of vet school because it turns out cauterizing skin, not for me. The smell made me pass out. I had to figure out what I wanted to do. I was like, I honestly don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I was just like, let's keep holding off on doing things until I have to actually go to work. Went to law school. I was like, it can't be that hard. I had lawyers in my family and I'm like, "Eh, they're not that smart. I'm not going to have to do too much work if I do that. I then was like, oh, well, I can go be an environmental lawyer. My honors thesis to graduate with my JD was actually on the whaling industry. I was like, I'm going to fight for whales. To this day, still love whales. I volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center in San Francisco. Still a big part of my life. But you very quickly learn that there's no way to make money in environmental law unless you're sitting on a Greenpeace boat 24-7 and they're feeding you, you might break even then. So I kind of was like, oh no, I don't know what I want to do. So I had a couple of clerkships. I had a bunch of jobs that I did. So I worked for White Castle, not flipping burgers. I actually worked on their legal team. I worked for Fiat, Ferrari. So I did a ton of things in that space. And I was just like, well, I think I want to do something in like the company side. So I went and I was like, I'm going to focus on tax law. Love taxes. I'm that weird person that's just like, there's a book, you can open it and there's an answer. Yes, no. If there's a no answer and you really want it to change, you can fight for it. So I was like, you know what? Let's do this. I'm going to go and kind of pivot to tax law. At the time, and this is still true today, there's not that many young tax lawyers. 
So I went to work at a really big firm in New York. And it was really funny because I was probably the youngest person in the tax practice by a good 30 years, maybe. (laughs) So I had nothing in common with my colleagues, but I loved it. For me, taxes, it was more of a game. So I really enjoyed it. It didn't really feel like work, but at the same time, my social life was not existent. (laughs) I lived with my grandparents in New York. There's no social life. Let's be honest. I was going to weddings and people were like, oh, this is my friend and I'm having a baby. And I was like, I'm working on this really cool case. I'm going to be in Israel for three months. And you're like, I have nothing. This is kind of not the point of life. I loved being a lawyer, but it had to kind of change. I always tell people, I went to college and I just played it by ear. I took classes I really was interested in. My undergraduate degree was focused on genetics. I loved that kind of stuff. And it ended up coming in handy because... When you don't know what you're going to do, you just keep playing it by ear. So everything that I did ended up being really helpful where I am now. Yeah, that's a long, windy story. (laughs) But it's fun, and and I'm glad I asked. I feel like a lot of people go to law school who are smart and don't know what they want to do. And then if that's their path, eventually you get burnt out. So from law school, it sounds like, although it wasn't exactly a direct path, you decided to go towards the founder side. So Was it true burnout or is it like, I actually have an idea? It was very much burnout. So I left being a lawyer working in a firm. I went to Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. They recruited me. They gave me this slick, fancy book that was like, find Baltimore, find you in Baltimore. And I was like, yes, I want to do this. So I went to work for Johns Hopkins. Did not know much about healthcare. The minute I get there, I end up in China. So I spent most of my time not actually in Baltimore, very misleading book, did a ton of work in China for Johns Hopkins, which did not actually help me get one of those life things I was trying to get. Like, again, I was like, I'm going to get one. Yeah. No, going to China. I'm going to learn Mandarin. One of those life things. What is a life thing? You know, where you get like a spouse and maybe have some kids, maybe buy a house, get a pet. (laughs) (laughs) have more than like ketchup and tartar sauce in your fridge. I really was like, I'm going to get one of those. I'm going to buy a place in Baltimore. I'm going to get one of those, you know, house things. I'm going to meet some fancy dude and we're going to like have this great life. No, I wound up in China. So that was not meant to be. But when I did work at Hopkins, it was really funny because so much of my life became healthcare. And pretty much the first Christmas that I worked at Hopkins, again, not a doctor, have very little medical training. I started to get everyone in my family that was like, oh my God, I got this mole. Can you look at it? I'm like, dude, I'm not a doctor. So it became really apparent that as soon as you go to Hopkins, people are like, healthcare. So my career obviously did pivot a little bit. When I was at Hopkins, I got really close to a lot of the doctors I was working with that developed technologies that we were interested in selling or licensing. And I got really interested in the OBGYN side, the women's health side. So I left Hopkins to go work at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is the medical society that governs women's health. Loved my job there. I was working with a lot of companies bringing on new technologies and trying to figure out how they get into practice guidelines, how they get reimbursed, how they actually go from an idea into actually getting in your doctor's office, which is really interesting. Women's health is a little backwards. At that time, that was how I kind of was like, I have some ideas. I think I want to found something. Again, my undergraduate degree was in genetics, but again, for cows. But the interesting thing is a lot of the genes and kind of what you're looking at are really similar. 
So I was like, I think I want to start a genetics company. Yeah, I went into that startup space. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find the hardest thing. I'm gonna find the most niche thing. I'm gonna find something so weird, so hard to find. Let's just try it. So yeah, I started a women's health company. We were trying to work on preventing pregnancy complications by identifying the genes involved. And I definitely started out, was like, this is great. This is going to be so easy. Yeah, no, it's not. (laughs) I think it's helpful because we're going to talk a lot about venture capital, the industry financing across all of these different new verticals. But as a founder during that period, what were some of your key takeaways sitting on the other side, pitching venture capital? Because I can imagine a genetics company is not a low capital intensity company. No, no. Anything in biotech is expensive. It's really funny when you have people who are like, yeah, I have 100,000, I have 500,000, and I'm going to change the world with this medical device. And you're like, that's not even going to get you through a clinical study. And unfortunately, anything needs to really be highly vetted in this country. It's really interesting because I think there's a total mismatch of expectations with founders and how they're actually going to make it when it comes to funding anything in a deep tech, biotech, Because you find a lot of investors who are just like, yeah, I need you to like do a clinical study for 30 grand. That doesn't get you your IP work done. I think also we were in women's health. So that was incredibly frustrating because you get people who are like, this is niche. Or have you thought about pivoting your genetic findings to men's health? The amount of times we were like, oh, we also think we have a marker for impotence or we have a marker for male pattern baldness. And they're like, yeah, just stop this women's health stuff. Go do that. And you're like, oh, cool, cool. We were a female company. We only had two men on staff. And it was really funny when people would ask all the women questions that you're just like, okay, it's very clear that we're only talking to male investors. Or we're talking to female investors that come from a really privileged background. They just don't get it. So that was kind of funny. It was really eye-opening. I always tell people the reason I decided to be an investor was because I was really tired of having to not roll my eyes when investors would say some of the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Let's be honest. Sometimes you're just in pitches and we heard people say, well, women have two uteruses or, well, women can't actually have an orgasm. So are we sure they're having pain during childbirth? This should not be the experience people are having. People really don't always understand. It's like, if you're a VC, your job is to make money for your LPs while being a good steward for your founders. And I think that's something that's really misunderstood. We need to figure out a way to be good investors and good stewards of founders and not just being total pieces of shit. It's not that hard. Again, maybe it's because I grew up on a dairy farm in the middle of nowhere in Appalachia that I'm like, this is not that hard. Just be a good person. But it turns out some people struggle with that a little bit. So it sounds like it was pretty shitty being a female founding team pitching a male-dominated VC circuit. Do you have positive takeaways or things that you thought about the VCs that you're like, someday I want to be like that person or people that were helpful that guided you in a way that were like lessons learned? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of investors that I really tell people when we were pitching, I learned a lot from them. Sarah Kunst of Clio Capital was one of our first checks in and she was so important to kind of helping us craft our messaging and like understanding how it works. Because Our whole team, none of us were really from the tech ecosystem. 
I got a lot of experience from just listening to people who I thought knew what they were talking about, but weren't complete blowhards. So unfortunately, that's not very many people, but there were people like Jeff Lewis. I was like, okay, you know what? He's comfortable with himself and he knows what he's talking about. I want that. I really was trying to avoid the people that were like talking just for clout, because I think the more VCs do that, the less they actually know how to do their job. It's just say what you're going to say and get it out there. And those were the type of people that I thought really helped us from like the venture or investor side. They really helped us understand what we needed to look for. And those are still two people that as an investor to this day, I would join a cult and follow them. But I mean, yeah, it's really hard to find those people. And then when you become a VC, it's really hard to sift through the ashes of people's just bullshit. You're just like, what am I actually listening to or seeing? I think a lot of people misunderstand this job for being a thought boy or being a party kid. It's been interesting because I've been in LP and funds, been an angel investor before I did this as my full-time job. And so... It's definitely made me look really closely about who is actually managing my money and what the fuck are they actually talking about? (laughs) I feel like when you were thinking about the founder path, people either want to be an operator, they want to have an impact on the world, they're focused on solving a problem. And people have to ask some hard questions like, what am I good at that's better than most people on the planet? Because they know how the odds are stacked against them. I guess when thinking about switching the game to the other side of the table, where now I'm going to be a venture capitalist, tell me more about how you thought about the game, why you thought you were going to be good at it, why you wanted to do it. Again, I was like, I just want this to be a different experience from what I had. But also, I knew I was going to be good at it just because my angel investments are pretty decent. My LP investments were pretty decent, thanks to some wonderful work. They're not so much anymore. (laughs) But I am really proud of my angel portfolio. I think I've done a really good job of choosing companies and doing diligence on companies. Unfortunately, because I've had so many weird stops in my career, I know a lot about a lot of different industries. And I also do tend to take a little bit of a different mindset when I look at investments. Than kind of, I think most people who have really been ingrained in Silicon Valley, I do try and think outside of the bubble. And I do try and think, is this something people here in Ohio are going to use? I think a lot about that with crypto and fintech. You always get people say they're building for everyone. And I'm like, you're not actually, because there's no way in hell it's going to get taken up by my meemaw down the road who wants to go see a teller. There are certain understandings that people just don't have when they're unfortunately in a bubble for too long. I think also one of the things that I really took seriously, like I thought about this before I did this. This was not, I'm just going to go do this now that my startup shut down. This might be the only time in my career I thought a lot about doing a job because I was like, I don't know if I want to do this full time. I don't want to be one of those people who's just asking stupid questions for no reason in a room. And there was one day I was getting a pitch for an angel investment and I was still on the fence whether I was going to do the fund full time and this was something I wanted to do. And I can't figure out what this founder is doing. And I just straight up asked, so what the hell are you actually doing? What does your company actually do? And he was like, oh, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I was just like, okay, we've gone wrong in this industry. If we're letting founders get that far down without saying, what are you actually doing? That was also at the height of crypto and Web3 froth. But the reality was, that's a question that should have been the first question for most investors. They had other investments, other really big names were in there. And I told you earlier, I was like, I've definitely talked to 
founder. So I'm like, you're going to jail. By the time they finished talking to me, I was like, oh, this founder is definitely going to jail. Oh, crap. But I think that was when I was like, okay, I actually do have something to add. I have value. This is a place that I can find my place. And when I was starting my law career, I had a judge that I worked for that was so kind enough to tell me that he was just like, listen, you have to find your place so that you don't lose your personality and you don't lose what makes you you. He's like, you're funny. You have a sense of humor, but you also are like transparent and honest. He's like, if you go into any industry and they want you to change that, it's not for you. And I just kept thinking that. I don't want to be that. I think I do a pretty good job, but it's definitely something that's really important to me. It's just being myself and being true to myself when I'm having discussions and kind of working with founders. The getting out of jail comment, it came from your website. So Vol One Ventures is your firm. And there's a banner that says, let's keep you out of jail. So give me the thesis on what Vol One Ventures focuses on, what your verticals are, and where the let's keep you out of jail came from, because it's very memorable on any VC website. We really are trying to be the first check-in for anyone we're working with. We really believe that that's where we make our biggest dent for founders. And the reason for that is I really do focus on highly regulated industries. If you're in a regulated industry, it's probably somewhere I can be a value add. If you're something like SaaS, uh, cool. I wish you the best of luck. I think you're going to be awesome. But I don't really know that I can really help move that needle. I really want to work in industries where I can help people. Because one of the things I've seen from a legal perspective, as you see, especially in crypto and fintech and healthcare, you spend a ton of money with your legal expenses in the first few rounds. You see startups spend half of their raise on regulatory fees, regulatory consultants, trying to keep the people legal, trying to keep their employees from doing bad things. And I really want to make sure that we as a firm can help take some of those fees down, help get them on the right regulatory pathway first. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people are like series A and they're just learning of a regulatory constraint. You're like, that should have happened two years ago or more. Sometimes it's like you literally went down the wrong pathway for five years and you can't launch. That's hard. It's really hard to see, but it happens more times than I would like to see. So that's really important. I want to make sure that we're getting people off on the right foot from the beginning. That's why being the first check-in is really helpful. And I think also both Ian and I are former founders. So we've seen investors try and kind of push us in one direction where you're like, yeah, that's totally a good idea knowing that it's not. And so I think one of the things that I do, it's not something I've seen a lot of investors do, but sometimes you do have to negotiate against yourself. It's kind of like, okay, short-term, long-term, what is actually going to get this company to the finish line? And if you're, as an investor, looking for a quick exit, sometimes that's not the right answer for the company long-term. And I think, especially in the crypto space, we see that a ton. We see a ton of investors that are just like, I want to make my money back quick. Great, but the company's failing as soon as you make your money back. That's why we've seen the circular tokenomics. We've seen this circular insulated ecosystem where nobody is really making money, but like four or five VCs. And that's the shifting of the economics there isn't really a great thing long-term for the ecosystem. And so that's really important that we think outside of that box. We want to be trusted by our LPs to make them the most money in the most legal way possible. I do not ever want to fund a founder that goes to jail. To me, that's a big knock. Our job as former founders and investors is to make sure that people understand that 
we want you to make money the right way. I don't want you to make money the wrong way. The amount of times as a founder myself, investors pushed us to be like, oh my God, do this quick, quick, quick. And you're like, yeah, I can't just release a genetics test. That's how you go to jail. That's how you hurt people. It happens every single day. LPs would not want to find out that that's what their money is going to because it's not good advice. It's not being a good steward of their money. And it's not being a good steward of the founders that you're working with. So I do really take that very seriously. There's no point in saying how good your returns are on paper if none of them have exited. And there's two of them that will actually be able to exit because they can actually get through an M&A process or an IPO process. I do a ton of consulting in that area. And the amount of times I've had to see startups get shut down from doing an IPO or an M&A with a bigger company is a lot of times they just haven't been on the right path from like a regulatory perspective, or they've done something illegal in the first six months of the company. No big company wants to take that on their books. Just start doing things right. The more companies are scared about legal, the more I'm like, okay, so what are you actually doing? Or what bad advice did you follow that you're so concerned about? Oh my God, the SEC or oh my God, the FDA. It's like, if you're that scared of it, you've done something. (laughs) I've definitely seen this where a large part of founding and seed capital is going to lawyers and it makes you kind of want to throw up at the bills. So then how do you scale that down? Are you offering legal advice? Are you helping them as like outsourced GC? Like, At the end of the day, you need opinions, you need filings, you need reviews, there is work that needs to be done. How do you get those costs down? It depends on the company we work with, depends on our relationship with them. If I have to be like a GC temporarily or interim, I've done that before. We do help them in one-off situations. I try and really be their biggest advisor and champion in terms of regulatory. I really think that that helps us de-risk. And as we're helping build a company, we want to be operationally helpful and valuable. And so that is boots on the ground. If I need to get you a lawyer, I will get you a lawyer. If you need a lawyer ASAP, I'm probably going to be your lawyer ASAP. That comes with some ethics and conflict issues that we have to kind of hash out. And I want to make sure that we're all comfortable and we know what my role is at certain times. And so I do tell people when we talk about me negotiating against myself, that is a thing where you're like, okay, listen, I'm going to serve as your GC, but that means I can't work right now for the fund on you. So someone else is going to take over being that. I think that's really important. I really want to make sure that we are really helping people understand what their rights and their rules are. Because for a lot of founders, this is the first time they've experienced anything in the legal world. And so... I do want to make sure that what we're working on is giving them the right idea of how they should work with not just myself as a lawyer, but other lawyers as well. I don't want anyone to be scared of lawyers because everyone deserves really good legal representation. That might be the only thing about being a lawyer that when I first went to law school, I took super seriously. There's a story about John Adams representing Redcoats. British soldiers. And people were like, why would you do that? He's like, everyone deserves a good lawyer. I do want startups, no matter where they're at, no matter how much money they have, they should be able to get good lawyers. Because we have all heard the stories of what happens when they have bad lawyers. We've all seen what happens when a startup founder loses their company because their investors railroaded them. We see what happens when they end up having to sit before Congress and they're ill-prepared or they just don't know what to do. So I really do think that it's something that I wish people took really seriously. 
I do do also lobbying on behalf of some of our companies, especially in the areas where we know they need help with that. A lot of people just don't understand the American political system. They really don't. I have a newsletter called Highly Regulated that I'm writing right now for this week. I did a hyperlink to the Constitution and I'm like, do I need to actually put what the First Amendment is? And I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Oh, dear. Like every once in a while, I just have that like assumption that people know how things work. And then I'll see another person that's like, oh, my God, this crypto bill, it's going to happen. And you're like, oh, y'all did not see that how a bill cartoon when you were younger. Like we need to bring that back. We really do need to bring that back. It's funny. I'm from Boston and the John Adams story and the Boston massacre. Has always had a near and dear place to my heart about defending the redcoats over Me too. firing a bullet into the crowd. So I guess you touched a bit about it on that right now. So Volume One Ventures is focused at this intersection of fintech and crypto, both one regulated, one even more regulated, or being discussed as being more regulated. So it's an area that obviously plays to your strengths. What is your current take of the regulatory landscape where we are? Obviously, we went through a pretty big cycle. FTX's explosion, its intertwined nature with government and regulators is a big point of contention. There's lots of hearings. Bring us up to speed on where are we and what your take of the current environment is. I mean, I think the thing that everyone acknowledges is it's just super confusing in terms of what cryptocurrency regulation is going to be. I think we've kind of done this to ourselves, partly, because a lot of people really wanted to push for commodities to be kind of running the show with crypto. And again, as a dairy farmer and someone who knows a lot about commodities, as we traditionally define them, they are not in a position to be governing crypto. Like They're just not. They don't have the funding. They don't have the expertise. You can't tell me that someone that can't really figure out subsidies for corn and even milk, they struggle. They struggle. I think if you add on crypto to that, that's going to be a hard uphill battle. And so I think the push towards that has actually just made that confusion worse. I think they were looking as a way to avoid the SEC. I get it. But I think the reality is, I firmly believe that most crypto companies or most tokens are probably securities. You can paint a pig to look like a cow as much as you want, but it's still a pig. It's still going to oink. I'm not getting any milk from that pig. It's a pig. We keep trying to make excuses and make reasons for it. But I think trying to fight that and going up against it constantly, that battle, I think, created more issues than it should have. At this point, it would have been easier for us all to have worked with the SEC from the start in like 2009. I think the 10 plus years of fighting it made everything a lot worse. It made our relationship as an industry with the SEC really antagonistic. It's allowed for a lot of mindsets to be set one way. It also has unfortunately allowed for companies to get off the ground and hurt people that have now set the industry back. Again, I do a ton of lobbying. The number one thing when I talk to people after FTX is they were like, yeah, you don't understand. My constituents are calling me and politicians don't want to hear from grandmas and moms and dads that their son and daughter are now living back in their basement because they lost all their money on some cartoon token. And that was happening. That was legit happening. They were getting calls where they're like, my kid lost all their money or my kid even lost some of my money. And what are you doing about this? So it's impossible for people to understand the role that politicians have in this. 
they're not hearing it from the crypto industry. They're hearing it from their constituents. If you look at how we've presented ourselves as an industry, it's not good. It's showing your Ferraris and your Lambos and your parties with your DJs. Yes, it's great for social media. And I'm so happy that you have lots of Instagram followers now. However, people see that, that you might not understand later are like, so this is what you're telling me happened to Grandma Faye's money. It's not good. I think that the United States set ourselves back. We did it to ourselves. I hate to tell everyone that. I think it's interesting because on Tuesday, the EU just did a comprehensive rule that's probably going to take place, I think, in 2024 around cryptocurrency. Again, we're behind the EU, which is a hot mess. I think the too many cooks in the kitchen situation here in the United States, I think as an industry, we don't even know what we want the United States to make the rules be. If nobody's crafting the same rule and putting the same narrative forward, yeah, we really have created a mess that's not going to get fixed anytime soon. I'm sorry. A lot of people depended on like SBF and FTX to be the spokesperson for crypto in, in Washington. And now we can see how harmful that was. Armstrong and FTX shouldn't be in like Coinbase. They shouldn't be the only two people out there putting things forward because unfortunately, they're not the voices that are going to get through to politicians, to agencies. FTX was non-combative. Coinbase has been a little more combative. And unfortunately, the more combative we are and the more people don't understand how that comes across. For the love of God, don't put a tweet that says you wish harm on Gensler. What are people doing? <laughs> You're just like, oh, are you just asking to like get a letter from the SEC? Do you enjoy that? There's a lack of common sense of how we're portraying ourselves. Again, because nobody knows how politics in this country work, they're just like throwing stuff on a wall. It's like throwing baloney on the wall and hoping something sticks. None of the baloney is sticking because you're all using 20 different varieties of baloney. I agree with some of the stuff. I'll push back a little bit or just ask you some questions, specifically about the SEC. Let's start with the pig and the cow. I have a lot of analogies. All right, let me try mine on and I'll see if I can speak in the best farm language I can. So the real issue is a security versus non-security. So let's just say that milk is a security. If it's milk, it's a security. The question becomes, can milk turn into butter or cheese and become a non-security? So the reason why the commodity path became interesting to me, there are definitely some bad versions of this, of let's go to the regulator that has the smallest budget, so we're the lowest regulator. That's of ill intent. <laughs> the one of intent that I admire more deeply is that the notion that Bitcoin was launched in a way that was decentralized, it got granted as a commodity. A commodity is a form of security. It's a special form of security. But then it was like, is there this third path called a non-security? And the Hinman speech, which I know some people find upsetting, some people like it, some people don't, was this notion that something could be launched as a security, something can start off as milk. But if certain things happen, if there's decentralization, if there's a process, you can get butter and cheese. And the reason why I think that's fascinating is that's very different than a high yield bond, a term loan, a CDO, or any other financial engineering is that the notion of the state of the instrument could change once decentralization has occurred. So that's the part about the commodity side I actually admire. So what do you think about that version of it? I actually agree with that. I think the problem is very few people from the get-go set up 
what they're working on in a way that that can happen. Okay, we're going to really go down this deep hole of farm analogies. To get your milk to butter, what are the procedures you're using? You got to churn butter. So what are you using to churn it? Who's making the decision in what direction to churn the butter? Because that'll determine how coarse it is, all that kind of stuff. I think the problem is nobody actually thinks about that from the get-go. That's why we try and be the first people in the door because we want to have those discussions with people early because I don't want them to kind of play it by ear and expect it to become butter and a commodity. Less against the founders, because I agree. The general thesis that you're stating is that if you're going to raise money, if you're going to try to build something, if there's a group of people that are known, then you're a security because I know who you are. The irony of the SEC, CFTC, of many regulators being so proud to call Bitcoin a commodity, to me, is that what you're going down a path is, you know what we really like? Anonymity, which the regulators do not like in a version that somehow distributes without us knowing who it is because I can't go to someone, which is just a very weird signal because the state we're in of regulation, and this is the point of why lawyers are so expensive, is that it's all gray. To your point, I like a law until I don't, then my lawyers fight my law and write new laws. So the notion of what you're telling young people or innovators or entrepreneurs to go build is create no track record of anonymity, launch a piece of software such that nobody could ever point to you as a person or do it outside of the United States and play the regulatory jurisdiction game of I'm in a country that won't extradite me or says this is legally okay. Yeah, it's hugely problematic. I honestly think this probably the worst thing we did was making the Bitcoin and ETH statements so early because even they have changed since then. I think setting precedent that early when... Let's be honest, not a lot of regulators actually knew what the hell they were talking about with Bitcoin and ETH at that point. I think they were trying to play the popularity contest. And unfortunately, I don't think that was really the right way to do it, but it's where we're at now. What I don't like is that that shopping for jurisdictions right now. I think that's happening. I always tell people, listen, being extradited in another country is a lot worse than being just arrested in your own country. <laughs> so stop trying to play that game and let's try and build something that will allow you to live a life of safety and peace and comfort. And again, knowing you're not going to go to jail. It's like trying to tell people, run towards something that you want to run towards. Don't run from something. And I really hope that founders take that seriously because like, if we're running towards an actual well-thought-out regulatory system for cryptocurrency, it answers a lot of questions. And I think it also does help fintech a lot because I think we're seeing a ton of issues in fintech right now that unfortunately, they're in the same gray area in some regards. And I think we've also kind of not thought through the economics there. And so that's really what I am hoping people are building towards. I hope they're building things that are actually thinking through, you know, how does this work no matter what the regulatory structure is, but also am I building something that's helping people? And if all things go to hell in a handbasket, is this still going to help people? Because I think that's the one thing that people don't understand is like, I know it seems like I like love regulators. I don't. I think the government misuses a lot of their powers. And I do think that unfortunately, we have seen the government spend money where they don't need to spend money. And I don't always think the government is right, but I do think in this situation, it's kind of like we really hoped that we could build something that allowed for anonymity in a good way, 
And people were like, yeah, but I'm going to build something that helps kitty porn. And it's just like, cool, cool. There are repercussions for us as an industry. And I think that's where, as someone who has to talk to regulators, that's where it gets really hard because I can talk to them about a token and I can explain why we don't feel like we're a security and why we do think we're a commodity. And they'll go back to, yeah, but I heard someone said that they were using this for sex trafficking. And I'm just like, great. So we're here again. I just feel like that is a really easy, it doesn't mean that's not effective, but a very easy narrative to say that I don't like this thing. And I heard that some percentage of people use it for bad things. So I heard that it's used for money laundering. I heard it's used for terrorism. I heard it's used for sex trafficking. So to me, there's a narrative there of when I don't like something, then the government has every right to assume this gets back to John Adams and the principles of it, which I was never an anarchist to start like, you know, new reserve fund. But I was of the belief that people have rights and that when the government oversteps its bounds, they have a right to push back. And if the government's able to say, because bad things happen in the world, you have no freedom, that's a huge problem. I mean, we're there already. That's a bigger, like, philosophical, philosophical problem, than, unfortunately. We are there. I think a lot of people are just, like, not aware of. Exactly. I think that there's part of the crypto world that has this promise, especially to a generation that grew up losing a lot of freedoms with social media, with the modern invent of the internet, and just assuming like I lost all of this freedom and this attempt to try to put it back. Now, the pessimistic, cynical view is the genie's out of the bottle and the government controls it all and you've got no chance. The optimistic is it's worth fighting for and so it's the most important thing and so it matters. It's definitely worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. And I tell people, I spent a lot of my early years in West Virginia. And West Virginia is a really interesting place. The thing about West Virginia that people don't always realize is most of them hate the government. It's a very unbanked state. There's not a lot of generational wealth there. And the main reason I care about cryptocurrency is because of the years I spent in West Virginia. West Virginia is an incredibly poverty-stricken state. But... They don't want to give their money to the government. That's why they don't like banks. This is the state that has the most coffee cans buried. That is the actual statistic. They bury coffee cans instead of putting them in banks. And I think crypto is a really good way for people who don't want the government involved in their money. They don't see why it needs to be covered. These are not anarchists. These are good people. They just don't trust the government. And I think saying that they don't deserve a financial system or they don't deserve innovation in finance because they view that is kind of interesting. And so I think it is worth fighting for because there are people in their infrastructures that could be fully transformed by crypto. I always tell people, like, if we think about what crypto would look like if 50% of West Virginians had it, that changes the state's economic structure completely. When I started working in cryptocurrency in 2008, 2009, that was why I did it. I started working in cryptocurrency litigation because I was like, I have seen incredible poverty that is there because of people's understanding of our financial system or people not wanting to be in that financial system. A lot of these people could be banked. They just don't want to be. And that's okay. They have that right. They're not terrorists. They're not anarchists. These are just people that don't want the government involved in their money. And I think it's really hard when you say, well, we're going to take crypto away because we don't believe it's used for good. And it's like, yeah, but that's not necessarily the case. You're taking away the opportunity for generational wealth 
from places like West Virginia, where this is something that I think if they had the infrastructure, the uptake in cryptocurrency, I think, would be very high. But I think, again, a lot of people are not necessarily always familiar with use cases outside of what they're hearing or what the company line is or what the narrative that's the strongest narrative out there is. I think if you would ask people, how would you feel about rural America and cryptocurrency? They would have no clue about it. And I always think about what are the use cases of cryptocurrency in the agriculture industry? It has the perception of being very backwards, but the reality is it's a commodities-based market. It's also very much handshake deal. It's also, in a lot of cases, they want to live by their own rules, not away from the government, but they don't think that the government needs to have as much say in their world as they do. And I say that because if you ask any dairy farmer about the regulatory structure of whatever they're farming, they have many, many thoughts. It's interesting to see that there's just a real lack of understanding of kind of what our country could look like if we can make cryptocurrency work. It saddens me, honestly. Like It really is sad that we let people shut us down and we shoot ourselves in the foot. I think if we as an industry could come up with one narrative, we could be united, we could be a united front, we could actually think about what gets us forward versus fighting each other at times, I think it's a very different story. So how do we get from here to there? What do you think the regulatory outlook looks like in the short term? Is it just a wait for the election? And if the Republicans win and Gensler's out, then it changes? Or is there something you see happening before then? The only thing that would make something happen pre-presidential election is going to be another massive failure in the system. And that's something I do not wish that upon my worst enemy. Bank failure or crypto failure? Oh, it could be both, honestly. Unfortunately, that overlap between fintech and crypto remains pretty strong. But I think, unfortunately, that does happen. When FTX happened, I was out to dinner. And that night, I had at least 10 people call me that were on the verge of suicide. I don't wish that on anyone. That should not happen. So I do not wish that we have that failure. But I think, honestly... The reality is America continues to be behind other jurisdictions. This is where I'm hoping things like the EU's new rule start to actually light a fire under us. I think if we're the only people that don't have a comprehensive rule structure or regulatory structure, it becomes hugely problematic because the way our economics are set up as just a world, there are no borders anymore. And I think that's something that cryptocurrency has really allowed us to focus on. If we're the only people setting up unintentional borders, that just makes no sense. I know that a lot of people want to say we don't want to stifle innovation. There is you know, a chilling effect on innovation. I just don't think politicians and agencies care about that because in their mind, they're like, yeah, well, you've done a lot of innovation and this is where we're at. I wish that was the case because I do think we are starting to see more and more guidance. I've given my own founders guidance to be like, well, I think this is a better jurisdiction. I work a lot with Bermuda, and I think that's a structure that I think is close to the United States, but it's also one that we can work with. I don't ever want to see someone have to get extradited from Bermuda. I think that is something that we kind of are at a rock and a hard place. And I think that it's hard because as an ecosystem, we really want to think that we can use the tech mantra, move fast and break things. And 
here it's had the opposite effect for us. And I think that if I ever had access to a time machine, this might be the one time I would use it to go back to probably the beginning of Bitcoin to kind of create something in a very different way, because I think it could have been such a game changer. And I still think it can, but we're playing catch up. We are playing catch up and that's just the reality of it. Yeah. And I think that living life forward, the crashes and the failures as bad as they are also lead to appropriate or reactions that might lead to a different ground to build on. I think that a lot of people want to build, but they want to know what they can and can't do. And yes, there's been a lot of regulation. And yes, there's a lot of things that you already have to comply with. But like this, the issue of tokenization and security law alone is such a big thing to leave open and gray. I buy people's arguments like, oh, we're heavily regulated. We have to do this. You have to do that. It's all true. As long as we're connected to the banking system, there's so much you have to do if you do it the right way. And that's not easy. However, the notion of the security thing to me is probably the biggest linchpin that's not going to be the most recent Coinbase case proved it. And it was done very strategically and I think very intelligently by Coinbase to make the SEC say exactly how they're going to act, which is we don't have to define rules because we were granted extremely strong powers by Congress. Congress is afraid to take them away and Congress is afraid to give them more. So the current SEC is going to push that line as far as they can until something breaks. Are you familiar with the Chevron case at all? Yeah. I was just reading that someone's connected to this, and I don't think it does because I read a whole thing. So the Chevron case basically is that when the government gives regulator power and it's undecided over like where it should start or stop, the tie goes to the regulator. But the Supreme Court potentially overturning it, and it means that the tie doesn't go necessarily to the regulator all the time because this can be used for abuse of power. Do you think that impacts the SEC? I think it depends. I think the way the Supreme Court would put that in order would be pretty limited. If they left it open-ended in a way that the SEC could be in trouble, then we're looking at, unfortunately, Homeland Security. Looking at, you know, ATF, we're looking at DEA. That opens the floodgates for a lot of things that I don't necessarily think they would want. So I do think they'll keep it really narrow. And I think that's just a side effect, unfortunately, of just the way our powers are set up in this country. They know that if they broaden it too much, then again, I mean, unfortunately, we do have a government that really likes to push their powers. We've seen this time and time again. And it's not just the United States. Other nations do this as well. But the reality is our government is well aware of where they've overstepped some boundaries. It was brought to me by a lawyer who explained it to me over something completely different. I think it was like agriculture or environmental or something. And then I was like, can I read the case? So I just got curious and went down some silly rabbit hole that I tend to do. And the next thing you're reading, you're like, oh my God, this is interesting. The government can just kind of do what it wants and like push that pretty far. So yes, it has a chilling effect in some areas and maybe not in others. But I agree. There's usually like, I don't think this is going to be one bill. It's not going to be one case. It's not. I think it's going to be a push between people who want access to experiment, to try to own these type of instruments. And I do think that the part that makes it so hard, a regular standpoint, which I don't envy at all, is you do have suddenly international currency. The idea of this, the digital currency or international currency have been proposed but it was just never considered operationally feasible until Bitcoin. A basket of world currencies traded off another token. How do we keep track of it? 
going back to gold and trying to reinstate stuff. Like it always seems so silly. Yeah. I mean, you're going back to gold, you're going back to the 1100s and kind of how our own currencies kind of shaped. And it's interesting because you look at kind of some of the leagues that had currencies that really work the forefathers of what we have now. And it's really interesting because I actually think the further back we go in terms of developing infrastructure, developing currency, that's actually probably where we should go as an ecosystem. Because I think when people are looking at more modern developments, the problem is what ended up happening with modern currency development was we have treasuries now. We have federal regulated treasuries. And that happened because of a lot of the mismanagement and a lot of the issues that we now see in a different variety with cryptocurrency. Our own currency in the United States and other nations had those same issues. And that's why the Fed was put into place. That's why our treasury is now a thing. We're at that inflection point where it's kind of like, where do we actually see this going and what are we actually developing? And we can stay a juvenile idea or we can become an adult, be the adult in the room that's like, we're taking this seriously and we're experimenting, but we're also experimenting in a way that there is some semblance of making this work. That's why I always tell people like, the more you know about currencies that have succeeded and failed in the past, the better you're going to be in this industry. If you can't tell me why our Fed was developed or why the Treasury was developed, you're going to fail in this industry because you don't even know why we're now where we're at. And I think that's something that does worry me with a lot of founders that are just, they don't have an experience in this space. So they're just kind of like, I have an idea. And it's like, this is the one industry where I'm like, you do need to know just a smidgen of history, just a smidgen. I think if you read the one paper I'd recommend is Alan Greenspan's paper on gold and the creation of the Federal Reserve. I think if you knew about it and you knew where we are right now, it'd be hard for you to tell me how you don't own crypto just because of the invent of essentially allowing a system to have interventionist policies such by credit can be created in unlimited amounts. So it becomes a challenge of nothing else to do of like, it's the world currency, the world reserve. And I'm not by any means saying that's going to change anytime soon. But I do think that the financial history of the banking system is fascinating just as a finance geek. And that alone usually gets people at least as um, insurance against an experiment that just still is ongoing. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because I think that if people understand that paper and why Greenspan said the way he said the things he did and the way he did, I think it makes a lot of sense. But I think even today, there's applications to that because I mean, look at where we're at with our debt ceiling. I just did the math and we have about 87 billion in cash reserves right now as a nation. Like that's scary. And that is also something where I think that the fact that we're not talking about that and what that means for crypto is super interesting. I'm like, there are companies with more money in the bank than the United States right now. There are crypto wallets that probably have more money than the United States right now. The fact that we're like pretending that the United States is actually working in terms of our economic theories is a little problematic because we have this same rigmarole we do every six months, every year where we hit up against a debt ceiling and we pretend we are making really good economic decisions when it's a group of people that are voted in. I mean, to me, the debt ceiling, you become desensitized to it when you realize it's just a bunch of theater. People roll treasuries. On the fixed income side, you just move the bonds around. Yeah, yeah, just move them around. Yeah, we can make it work. 
but it becomes a headline thing. What they're trying to address is a much broader issue. I think Drucken Miller's most recent presentation, which took the $30 trillion of debt plus all the entitlements and gets you to $200 trillion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a small number. It's a small number. <laughs> it's about saying that we always knew we had an income inequality problem, but it's a demographic war that's going on. Grandparents are going to take away from grandchildren and burden them. And until you get to a crashing point, you probably don't get it rectified. So we have these mini pretend car crashes every six months. Yeah. But it just goes back to the status quo. I don't necessarily think they're pretend car crashes. I think they're maybe the rubberneck crash that you see on the highway and you keep moving until the highway comes to a complete stop because there's so many crashes. I do think at a certain point, having whether it's a headline to scare you or not, having $87 billion in the bank is not a sign that we should probably just move on past that. (laughs) It's just problematic. I think that is a great jumping off point for a real conversation about crypto. And I think that when you have people pretend that it's not, or they're like, oh yeah, no, we just need to follow all these things and this will happen. It's like, you're missing a really, I think, important point that we can come together as a nation and have this conversation. I think it goes to our political system. And I think a lot of people just don't know what they're voting for. So we're here. It's a fun point to end at. One of those elected officials said, the U.S. government can just print the money out of thin air because, well, it's the U.S. government. So Stevie, this has been a lot of fun. You are just as fun in person as you are on the internet. And so I recommend everyone follow you and watch your stuff. Uh, Thank you. We end these podcasts with the same question as now on the investor side, what are you most excited about seeing built over the next six months and over the next six years? I give a lot of thought to kind of what are people developing that are changing lives? I started my startup career trying to save women's lives. I do think a lot about that. I'm not aspirational investor, but I do think, as I talked a little bit about earlier, how are we actually putting things in place that are helping people? How are we building companies and startups and fintechs and crypto companies that are actually going to put changes in our wallets? How are we making it easier for people to become banked when they're unbanked? How are we actually building generational wealth? What I don't like seeing is people that are like, yeah, I've got this great idea to stop generational wealth. And it's literally BNPL or something like that. It's like, oh, no, no, please don't. I really do think that if we can build things in an ethical way that is thoughtful to how everyone is in this country, then I think we'll start to see some changes. How are we building financial products, crypto products that are helping women, older people, people who are in rural areas? How are we building products that actually make sense for them? So I'm super excited to see some of the things that have been happening there. Unfortunately, the side effect of that is I'm really excited to see better internet built for rural America. So one day, one day I'll be able to sit in my parents' house in rural Ohio and have Wi-Fi one day. I think that's really what I want to see is more products that are really being developed with that in mind and seeing the amount of people that are living in poverty in the United States. It's not a small number. And so I think if we can actually start to think about building products that work for them, most likely they'll work for other people as well. Well, Stevie, thank you for the time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, same. Super fun. Glad we could chat. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 